So they go to Abraham Lincoln seeking the president's support. George Q. Cannon in his journal left us a very good description of his visit with Abraham Lincoln. And he talks about how even though the president was dealing with the Civil War, he still took the time out to talk with them, but also to joke around with them, kind of the way we imagine Lincoln. We kind of have this idea as a nation that Lincoln was this homespun storyteller, very humorous, larger than life figure. And that's how we see him in the Cannon Journal. Hello and welcome to Saints. I'm Shailen Back. And I'm Ben Godfrey. And today we have with us Scott Hales. He's the general editor and writer for Saints. And Scott, just tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're working on. We've had you on in season one, and we're really glad to have you back. Well, as you said, I'm a general editor and writer on the project. Informally, I'm kind of known as a literary editor, which means that my job is to structure the story in a way that will be interesting or entertaining to people. My job, as I've said before, I think maybe even on the show, is my job is to make sure that readers don't fall asleep reading a story. So it's really my job just to make sure that the narrative clips along at a good pace, that we tell interesting stories. Well, and I think you've done that, Scott, because we get tons of compliments from readers. Last week I was at a conference and all I heard all conference was, when is volume two coming? When is volume two coming? And (laughs) of course, by the time this episode airs, volume two will be released. But there was just a ton of interest and excitement about, uh, about the project and about what we're learning in our history. In our episode today, we're going to be talking about chapter 21, which is titled The Same Great Work. And in this episode, we want to talk about some of the things in the chapter that maybe are mentioned briefly, but we could go in a little bit more depth on. And the first one of those is we have a prophecy from Joseph Smith. Joseph, of course, has passed away at this point, but he prophesied about a war. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, and I think this is one of the most fascinating things about about church history. I mean, we all know, in, in fact, sometimes we take for granted Section 87, the Doctrine and Covenants, which is this prophecy where Joseph Smith, a revelation where he, he basically prophesies what we now understand to be the American Civil War. And this occurred in 1832. And there were some events at the time that seemed to suggest that the United States was about to enter into a civil war, but that didn't come to pass. And what's interesting is that this revelation then was just kind of shelved. It was not published in the Doctrine and Covenants or the Book of Commandments or anything like that. And it just kind of lay in the church records for a while. In 1851, it was then uh, published for the first time as part of an early version of the Pearl of Great Price. But even then, this was before the Civil War occurred. So they just put the revelation there and said, this is going to happen sometime. We just don't know when. And then 1861 rolled around the election of Abraham Lincoln, the beginning of the American Civil War, South Carolina seceding. And then everything seemed to line up just as, as Joseph Smith prophesied. It was quite a shock to many members of the church. Well, I found it sort of fascinating that... There were newspapers, non-Mormon, non-church-affiliated newspapers. In the book, we learn about articles that were written saying, maybe this guy was a prophet. I can't remember what else do they call him. Not a scallywag. (laughs) Oh, they said that this prediction seems to be in progress of fulfillment, whether Joe Smith was a humbug or not. Right, a humbug. (laughs) So local newspapers around the country kind of took notice that Mm -hmm. Joseph had prophesied this would happen, even that South Carolina would be the one to go. Yeah, and, and, and the missionaries followed suit. I mean, they began to use this revelation quite a bit, and they would take it around not only to to kind of the people they were teaching, to people who were not members of the church, but also to members of the church who had not yet gathered design and said, look, 
this is a prophecy. It's coming to pass right now. You need to come to Zion because things are going to get really dangerous out here. We're about to face all these perils listed in this revelation. And if you go back and read the revelation, you can see it does not forecast happy times. Right. Uh, and, and so the missionaries used it as a way to motivate people to, to come to Zion. So tell us more about this gathering. They're telling people from the east to come to Zion. What's the response like? It's uh, quite enthusiastic. People begin to come to Zion in droves. I think the numbers for 1861 alone is about 2,000 plus people are beginning to come uh, to Zion. This is from the United States, from Europe, South Africa. And what's interesting is that the church has, at this point, recently put into place a new program called the Down and Back Wagon Company. Yeah, I was hoping you'd be able to tell us about that because we might have touched on it in a previous episode, but... What exactly were these down and back companies? Because this is totally different than how I always thought the, the migration worked. Yeah, and so I think the early model for migration was that, you know, if you wanted to come to Zion, what you had to do was you had to purchase a wagon, you had to purchase oxen, you had to learn how to drive the, the team of oxen, which was a challenge. For example, some uh, immigrant saints who came over having never driven oxen in their life, you know, whether they were factory workers or something, they just weren't experienced with it. But they had to have a lot of money to be able to do this. Gathering was not cheap. And as the church faced financial problems and as the saints from abroad became more strapped for cash as well, the church implemented the, the famous handcart program, right. uh, which was much more economically efficient. And it was actually quite successful. I mean, we always talk about the, the two tragic companies, right. but there were, I think, eight other companies that were, were able to bring saints over rather successfully. But as the records show, traveling by a handcart was not fun. It was not easy. It was, it was very difficult. Way, way hard. And so what the church decided to do with these down and back companies was they decided that the handcart program was requiring too much sacrifice. So what they began doing is they began to have uh, saints in the valley donate wagons and donate teamsters and other resources to go down and pick up immigrant saints in Missouri or wherever it was in the Midwest and bring them back with these wagons. And so the church would supply the wagons, would supply the oxen in many ways, would supply the Teamsters. And all people had to do was join a down and back company and travel west. Uh, it was relatively affordable. I, I think it's $14 for adults and $7 for children, which is pretty good. It was more comparable to what it would cost to take a handcart. Yeah, something like that. We were thinking about that this morning. And I mean, in today's money, like it costs more to go to the state fair than <laughs> uh, now, in, in their money and, and significant, but way less yeah. than the traditional model. So this seems to be a really good idea. Plus you get the benefit of having experienced teams. Exactly. They know the route, they know where the water is, they know where to get feed for the animals. And you're less likely to encounter, you know, the tragedies that we saw with the, with the handcart companies. And so overall it was a very successful program and I think the church used it all the way up to 1869 uh, when the railroad came. So Scott, now let's move on to talk about what's happening in the Salt Lake Valley. On a previous episode, we discussed how the U.S. troops were coming to Salt Lake to quell a rebellion or a potential rebellion. And in that panic of the saints preparing for these troops to come, they covered up the Salt Lake Temple Foundation, what they'd been working on. Mm -hmm. So will you tell us more about that situation and then what's happening with the foundation now? So when the United States Army came, the saints abandoned the city. And one of the things that they did was they, they buried the temple foundation and they made the whole temple square kind of look like a plowed field uh, just to disguise what they were doing. So the troops became, they became a per permanent presence in the valley for a few years. 
They settled in Cedar Valley, which is actually where I live. And the Saints gradually came back to Salt Lake City. And around the time of the Civil War, about the time of the, the outbreak of the Civil War, the Saints began to excavate the foundation of the temple and with the intent to just start off from where they left off. And uh, what they found there was that some of the temple stones had been improperly placed. And so there was some cracking and other damage. And so they realized that they were going to have to not necessarily start from scratch, but they were going to have to repair the foundation so that the temple would have a strong enough foundation for the rest of the building to kind of rest on. And so that's one of the things they started to do was to repair the stones. Let's listen to a little quote here from the book that talks about this work, what seemed to be really, really going at a slow pace. Do a good work on this temple, he told the temple foreman. He wanted the workers to take the time to do it right. I want to see the temple built in a manner that it will endure through the millennium, he declared. This is not the only temple we shall build. There will be hundreds of them built and dedicated to the Lord. Yeah, and that quote kind of reminds me of something my dad would always say. Maybe your dad, too. It's a very famous dadism, and that is if a job is worth doing, it's worth doing right. And I think Brigham Young took that view with temple construction. And I think that troubled some people because they saw other buildings going up. And in the chapter, we talk about the uh, Salt Lake Theater, which on the surface seems like a very frivolous project. And the Salt Lake Theater went up very rapidly while the temple itself was just for an outsider looking in. Somebody who's not associated with temple building just seemed like it was taking so long to do. And that's because Brigham Young wanted to make sure that the temple was built right because he wanted it to last through the millennium. And so, a lot different constructing out of solid granite versus, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, like uh, just a regular lumber and whatever the construction was like. I mean, yeah, it would feel very different though, because you'd see these buildings just spring up, mm. and the temple is barely above the ground. And it's important to remember how ambitious the Salt Lake Temple was. I mean, it took the Saints forty years to build. And that's because they did take their time, but it was also a very complex building, far more complex than the Nauvoo Temple. And it's also important to keep in mind that they were hauling stone from 20 miles away. And this is in the 1860s when hauling stone is not easy. And there were all sorts of difficult methods, whether they're hauling it by oxen, which would take a long time. I think there was a, at one point a plan to create a, a network of canals to get the stone to the temple. But they're trying their best to get the best stone here to Temple Square in order to build was already just an unbelievably ambitious project. So we're talking also about the theater that's going up, you know, and kind of seemingly competition with the temple in some people's eyes. What was the draw and the appeal to build a theater? Where did that idea come from? Well, I think one thing that, again, we need to keep in mind is that life in 1861 was not easy. And the Saints did not have on-demand entertainment the way we have today. So they would work quite a bit during the day. Very, very difficult labor, and at the end of the day, they needed some way to relax. And this is somewhat apocryphal. I don't know how true this is, but this, is, this comes from Brigham Young's daughter, Sousa. She said that her father taught that the saints needed to have eight hours of work, eight hours of recreation, and eight hours of sleep. In other words, we need to find a balance in life. We need to balance recreation with work or else we would just go nuts. I mean, think about it yourself. When you find yourself overworked, life is not easy. The stress just seems to pile on, but it's, it's recreation where we find value in life. And that's what the theater was about. It was just a way to provide more opportunities for recreation and entertainment for the saints because people need amusements. That's what Brigham Young taught. Let's listen to another quote here from the book that talks about this theater and what it would do for the saints. Though the city's social hall already functioned as a small playhouse, Brigham wanted a theater that would inspire the minds and imaginations of the saints. 
drama had a way of teaching and edifying people in ways sermons could not. Having a magnificent theater in Salt Lake City would also show visitors that the saints were a cultured and refined people, countering the negative images of saints in many newspapers. So it seems like Brigham has a couple of things in mind. He wants people to see that we're not just a bunch of religious fanatics out here on Mm -hmm. the edge of the frontier, but we're cultured and refined. And this idea that drama can teach people things that a sermon can't. Mm -hmm. I kind of relate that a little bit to the family proclamation. One of my favorite parts in the family proclamation says that we are to have wholesome family recreation. Mm -hmm. It seems like that idea goes all the way back to the early saints. Sure. And I think what's really interesting about the Salt Lake Theater itself is that it began kind of as a family project. I mean, we talk in the book about the Bowering family, which was this early theatrical family in Utah, and there were some other theatrical families. And really what it was was these families would get together and put on performances for the public, and oftentimes it was families who would come here and families that would meet together. And this is one way that people bonded. I mean, the same way we kind of bond, I mean, we kind of talk negatively about this sometimes, but I know in my own family growing up and even today, oftentimes as a family, we bonded around the television. We'd watch programs and then we'd talk about them. And we found ourselves growing closer together. And I think the same sort of thing was happening with the theater. Families were either acting together in these productions or they were attending these productions together. And then afterwards, they would talk about it and they would express their views and opinions and get to know each other better and ultimately would just become closer. I love what Brigham Young said, too, in connection with the theater. He said that people must have amusements, which we've talked about, but then he said, hell is a great distance from us, and we can never arrive there unless we change our path, for the way we are now pursuing leads to heaven and happiness. And I think that's so neat to provide a balance to what we're doing in our lives, that we do need to pursue things with our families and individually that does lead to happiness and lends a great support to our service in in the gospel. I love that. So one of Brigham's biographers talks about this theater. One of the things I remember him talking about is someone comes later when it's all finished and there are these beautiful chandeliers. And Brigham's pointing out to him, look at our beautiful chandeliers. Aren't they wonderful? And he says, yeah, they're they're as fine as any I've seen elsewhere. I'm paraphrasing. Mm -hmm. And then Brigham goes on to tell him they're actually made of wagon wheels. And I helped do the gilding myself. (laughs) And he's just sort of pointing out we can make it look good. And we can be refined, and but we're going to do it with the materials we have available to us here. Yeah, I just found that rather interesting that he's just kind of ingenious in coming up with ways to make a place look cultured and make it beautiful, but do it with what we have. Yeah. If you're ever in the Salt Lake area, one neat thing to do is to go up to the Daughters of the Utah Pioneers Museum, which is just north of where we are recording this podcast right now. And the museum there was built just after the Salt Lake Theater was raised, after it was was taken down. And in honor of the Pioneer Theater, which was such an important thing to these early saints, the Daughters of the Utah Pioneer designed their museum to look like the Salt Lake Theater. And if you go in there, if you go enter the, the main floor and go all the way to the back, you'll see a section of the museum is dedicated to the Salt Lake Theater. And it shows some of the workmanship that was harvested before it was torn down. So you can see some of the original seats, uh, some of the railings. Um, I don't think they have any of the chandeliers there, but they've got quite a few artifacts there uh, from the Salt Lake Theater. So if you're interested in that, it's, it's a great place to go and learn a bit more about this building. Let's move east now and talk about possibly one of the most famous people of all time, at least of modern times, Abraham Lincoln. What an amazing time. This is during the Civil War, 
and George Q. Cannon is going to meet with Abraham Lincoln. Tell us about this meeting and why he's there. So George Q. Cannon, uh, as we show in the chapter, he comes to Washington, D.C. He's in England at the time, but he's called to come to Washington, D.C. because he has been elected provisionally as a senator for the state of Utah if the Saints' latest statehood petition gets approved. And so he goes there along with William Hooper, uh, another Latter-day Saint, to lobby for the Saints for statehood and for other matters. Namely, there's at this time a anti-polygamy bill going through the United States Congress. And so they're there both to lobby against that bill, but also to lobby for statehood. So they go to Abraham Lincoln seeking the president's support. And ultimately, uh, the president is unable to do much to help them. But what's nice is that George Q. Cannon in his journal left us a very good description of his visit with Abraham Lincoln. And he talks about how even though the president was dealing with the Civil War, he still took the time out to talk with them, but also to joke around with them, kind of the way we imagine Lincoln. We kind of have this idea as a nation that Lincoln was this homespun storyteller, very humorous, larger than life figure. And that's how we see him in the Canon Journal. But ultimately, the meeting was not so productive because Lincoln was unable to do much to help it was still interesting to kind of read Cannon's description of Lincoln and to learn about this encounter. Super bad timing in yeah. a lot of reviews. <laughs> Very bad you know, timing. You got <laughs> the Civil War, you got Mountain Meadows that's happened recently and that those issues are spinning around. Yeah, it doesn't go so well, but at least we get a nice colorful picture yeah. of President Lincoln. So George Q. Cannon, after this unsuccessful lobbying, he goes back to England where he had been on a mission and his wife was there too, mm -hmm. his wife and daughter. And yeah. so he had left them to go to Washington. And when he came back, I love hearing from the wives' perspectives of the missionaries that went mm -hmm. out. So it's wonderful that we have their records in these journals that talk about their feelings. And I just relate so yeah. much just what they're dealing with with their children and everything. But I was just thinking of how much missionary work has changed today. And totally. there are so many opportunities to serve missions, but the calls are never to, you know, leave spouses, which I'm grateful mm -hmm. for. And they're certainly nowhere near as long. Um, we just had some people in our ward that a senior couple that had gone on a mission just a couple states away, they were gone for six months. And suddenly before you knew it, they were giving their homecoming talk. And I just think it's neat that we all have opportunities to serve that kind of fit yeah. our needs and that we're not going to be put in these very difficult situations. And what's really, I think, incredible about this scene is that we don't, in, in our archives, in the church archives, we don't have a lot of material from the Cannon family. So we have George Q. Cannon's official papers that he wrote when he was in the first presidency or as a, as a member of the Quorum of the Twelve or as a mission president or whatnot or as a politician, but we don't have a lot of material from his wives or his children, especially of a personal nature. But we do have this very short journal from Elizabeth Cannon, which I think just spans a matter of just a few months from 1862. And when we came across that, we were like, this has potential for a scene. And so it was great that we were able to tell the story of George Q. Cannon's return and the, the experience of this mission tour that they take through Europe from her point of view, because she really gives us some great insights into what it was like as the wife of uh, a mission president, but also what it was like to visit these different branches of the church. You know, I love how the, the scene ends with her, where she talks about how she was not able to communicate with these saints, but she yeah, could feel, I, I love this she could part feel what it meant to be, she could feel uh, a sense of community with them this shared sainthood. I just thought it was beautiful. When we saw that, I knew that had to be in the book. I've done a fair amount of travel in, in my life, and my career. I've been in places where I didn't understand what was going on in sacrament meeting. 
And when I read that line from her that said, I could not make myself understood, yet we were in the same great work and partook yeah. of the same spirit. Mm -hmm. Like, I've felt that. And I bet thousands of our listeners have felt Absolutely. that at some point. Either the first of your mission, you know, if you're going foreign speaking and you have no idea what's going on, but you're just so glad to take the sacrament and sure. be like, okay, I know what that prayer, even though I can't know those words, I know what that prayer meant. Yeah. And I, I, I love that too. And what's interesting in this scene too is I, I feel like what they're able to share at the end is music. And I think that's one of the things that I noticed when I was a missionary in Brazil was that even though I didn't know how to sing these songs, pronounce these words, I recognized the tune and they were familiar tunes from church. And so I could share that with others. It was great. Scott, there's another fascinating part of this chapter that I think many listeners will identify with. Anna Sophia Dorius Birch, she's undergone an incredible transformation. The last time we met her, if I recall, she was very angry. She kind of didn't want to have anything to do with her sons that had converted to the church, divorced her husband, really seems to be very bitter. And then when her sons come back, she seems super happy. She's taking them around town yeah. and look, come meet my sons. Look how wonderful they are. She buys him a new suit, you know. Yeah. What has happened to Anna Sophia to make this change? Unfortunately, the records that we have come from her children and nothing really comes from her. So we don't know exactly what it was that made the change that caused her to change the way she did. Her, her son, Carl, uh, her oldest son came back. She didn't recognize him at first, but once she found out who he was, she just embraced him. So to me, that suggests that there was a bit of regret in how she treated her children before. I mean, before she was embarrassed to walk the streets with them. And now she was going to shops to buy her son a suit and she was visiting other branches with him and just embracing him. And I just assume that she'd had a change of heart, you know, like we all do. I mean, that's one of the great things about the story is that shows people change. That's the message of the gospel of Christ is that people can change. And Anna Sophia is a wonderful example of that. Somebody who was extremely bitter against the church, having a change of heart and ultimately embracing it. And it seems kind of heartbreaking because going back to the story, she basically disowns her family, divorces mm -hmm. her husband. Sure. And so it seems heartbreaking thinking about the timing. But then she and her daughter are ultimately baptized and they may not have gotten to this point of conversion, mm -hmm. you know, if they hadn't have gone through what they went through with their family. That's true. It is kind of sad to think of what might have been if she had joined the church with the rest of her family at the time. Could they have all come over to Zion together? I mean, that's one of the things that we show through this book with this family is that they all kind of come to Zion at different times. And then ultimately what we see happen, and I hope I'm not spoiling anything here for anybody, but what we see happen with this family is in the end, through the temple, they're able to come back together and all be sealed together. And it's just the story of the gospel of Christ. I mean, this is what it's all about. Fractured families exist, but the temple is there and gives us the possibility to reunite what's been fractured, to seal together what's been broken. And that's what we see here. Well, Scott, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your insights and your experiences with us. And we'd like to remind our listeners, for the things that we talked about, you can always go find more information. We have topics about the American Civil War, the Pioneer Trek, Norway, these other places and events and people that you can learn more information about. And if you have any questions or comments, you can email us at saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. And also, we just wanted to remind you that you can see all the topics, videos, and read along with the chapters on saints.churchofjesuschrist.org. I'm Shailen Back. And I'm Ben Godfrey. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>